Welcome back, guys. This is the 40th episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. This month's guest is American composer, musician, and visual artist Charlemagne Palestine. Born and raised in New York, Charlemagne's early years were spent singing sacred Jewish music and playing a wide variety of instruments, including the bongo, the carillon, the accordion, and the piano. By the 60s and 70s, he had made a name for himself within the same musical school of thought as artists like Philip Glass, Lamonte Young, and Simone Forti, favoring hours-long pieces for piano and organ, often utilizing techniques like strumming that he himself had invented. His music is expansive in both tone and quantity, and his style has often been described as playing an entire building. In fact, I had intended the theme for today's episode to be maximalism, but true to his own rebellious nature, Charlemagne almost immediately rejected the term. Instead, we approached the topic of a total art experience, the many ways he creates visceral music and the physicality of playing. Charlemagne, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It is really an honor to have you on the series. Thank you. So something that you often say in interviews is that you would consider your music to be not minimalist, as is often written about you, but... I don't even like the word music, to be honest. I don't like the word... See, I I don't like any of these terms. I mean, they just don't... I mean, the terms didn't exist. Well, music did exist before when I started. But things like minimal max, they didn't exist when I started. And so I know exactly who, who started to use these words. And they can use whatever words they want. You know, like like um, like Martin Scorsese loves to say fuck. Uh, I would prefer like fuck music than to any of the, at least I'm from Brooklyn. And that for me is a term that I find it's it's global, but it's also Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I just don't like any of these terms. And so it just isn't me. I mean, I, I do something and sometimes, I, I, but these terms sort of came after me and it's like writers and critics that invented or didn't invent them, but um, change their meaning. Mm. And so, and then I'm, I'm stuck with like, all of a sudden it's in a newspaper or, or a magazine. I'm, I mean, a, a perfect story in that sort of thing that what I do is changed by somebody else. Around 19, 
let's see what when it, when it was. It must have been about 1990-something. I had an interview with somebody about my name because often I get bothered about, is it my real name? Mm-hmm. And it's true that I've had three names because I was born in a Jewish family from Brooklyn and my and my first names were Chaim Moshe Palestine. Mm-hmm. And then when my uh, um, I had a grandfather, which I was born just after the, first, the Second World War, and my grandfather didn't want any of us to have too much Jewishness around us because he had been a victim of anti-Semitism. And he was actually old world, but quite um, modern. And so they changed it, it using the same um, consonants. Mm-hmm. I became Charles... Martin Palestine, which mm-hmm. is my actual official birth certificate and passport name. And then uh, when I was about 11, people started when I was a kid, as of my name is first name is Charles in America, everybody loves to call you Charlie. Mm-hmm. I hated that name, and, but more my mother hated that name. And so she said, well, we have to find another name for you because I can't stand it when people call you Charlie. <laughs> so she, we had friends who were working on a, a, um, a thesis uh, for university about Charlemagne, um, the, um, the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, at that point, when I was 11, I became Charlemagne Palestine. Well, this particular um, uh, interviewer in um, 1990 and something asked me the same questions. And at the end of each thing, I forgot to say Palestine because afterwards he wrote a, uh, an interview review where they, he said, well, my real name is Charles Martin. So Palestine, because I didn't tell him that now, even now, like 30 years later, often there are like um, biographies of me that say that my real name is Charles Martin, not Charles Martin Palestine, because Palestine is my family name. So example is that even my name, it can be fucked up uh, (laughs) a, a name a word I prefer to minimal and maximal and all these kinds of by these writers who just invent these different terms. So I'm, I'm tired of the word music. I'm tired of the word improvisation. I'm t- I mean, I'm tired of a lot of these words. They're, I mean, aren't there, can't, can't we find new words? Things like that. So that's why um, to, I, I know you wanted to be more in, you wanted an answer more intelligent, like, well, you're not really minimal, you're maximal. And I, and, and I've, and I fought this. I've become maximal for 25 years. You know that just like two years, two years ago, Phil Glass, uh, I, I read an interview that he said, you know, I'm not really minimal. I'm maximal. He, he stole that from me. He's my old friend. I mean, he can. I mean, I, I'm free to 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 lend him that. Thing. But it was a fight that I, these stupid terms just put you in a box. I mean, certainly the word minimal is such a box. It's such an unsexy word. But 
the whole world, I mean, if you have minimal architecture, you have a, a minimal design, interior designer, if you have a minimal restaurant. Now, it's so, everybody's so hot on that term, 50 years after. It, I just find it an unsexy word. So how would you, how would you hope that people describe your music? No, I don't like word, the word music anymore. <laughs> my things, my whatever's my, no, I don't know. I, I would like open words. I would like, or I don't know. I mean, and, and it, it's partially my own fault that I never found really good alternatives. For improv, I call it in the, in the moment. I do something in the moment because I don't like the idea that it's, it's just biggle boggled at the last. I, I don't biggle boggle. I, though biggle boggle is a nice word. I, that, I mean, if they would call me a biggle boggler, that I would love. See, that's a much more incomprehensible uh, term. And that I like. <laughs> what about something like visceral or physical? Does that resonate with you? That's, that's fine. Because that is an, a, an experience and that I do like. I've always liked to boogle boggle, wiggle waggle, ziggle zaggle out of terms that are too rigid. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, to, to uh, in any aspect of what I do. For example, uh, for, for years and years, as an American, I was doing multimedia. Um, but um, when I met my wife, uh, who's Belgian, but uh, is part of a tradition of Austrian art that they started already in the even before Wagner, um, in the early 19th century, it was called a Gesamtkunstwerk, which means a total artwork. Mm -hmm. Like that term. So that's a term that, what? <laughs> when I say that to somebody, somebody says, what? Now that's a response I like. <laughs> so it means that they're not sure what that means. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, it, it's an open term and that's, uh, uh, this is one of the longest conversations I've had about terms, and I, li I like it because th that's the point, is that if, if you put me, if, if you use a term and then it's already uh, so easy to understand, for somebody like me, I find it to understand the Groucho Marx that I would never like to be a member of a, a club that would have me as a member. Um, uh, and I feel sort of the same way. So I want to talk a bit more about what you've mentioned about this total, total art experience. Gesamtkunstwerk. Actually, <laughs> there's a very, people think, actually in, in Europe, people think that that was a term that um, Richard Wagner invented because he used it a lot. But actually, 20 years before there was a German uh, philosopher writer, his name is Karl Friedrich Eusebius Trendorf, 
invented the term Gesamtkunstwerk in 1827. Wow. And it means, Gesamt means everything, Kunst means art, and work means a work. So it's an everything artwork. He invented that already in 1827. And that seems like such a, and it's such an open term. And then, and then Wagner used it. Uh, that, these were these operas that were total experiences with moving stages and mm -hmm. uh, uh, lights flashing. And he called them Gesamtkunst. You're quite known for playing these very long lasting pieces. So do you think that that kind of long duration contributes to this total art experience? Wait, but that's an old, people don't really want very long pieces anymore. You don't think? No, no, it's very difficult to to actually organize a very long. Um, uh, Lamont Young has his own place in, in on Church Street, so he, he does it still. But we used to do pieces that went five hours easy. Try to get a group of somebodies. And back then in the times of hippies, in the times of of LSD in the times of people, um, then you could easily find lots of people who would be uh, ready to spend five hours on a work you, uh, uh, or listen or experience. Like even Einstein on the beach of, uh, of Phil Glass and Bob Wilson. That was four and something hours. It's very hard now if you, even now, if you like do a Wagner, a Wagner opera of five hours, very hard. Like, so when are you going to eat and how are you going to work out your family? No, no. How does it fit into your daily life? Uh, 50 years ago, it did. I mean, and hippies were, were space. Wow. Wow. This is eternity. They were into like, wow, this is eternity. They, they were ready for, they were ready to spend five hours for eternity. Find somebody who'll spend five hours now in the middle of their day and their, and their rush of rush world. Uh, so once upon a time, I used to do very long pieces. That's really was in the, until around the mid seventies. shorter and shorter, not only mine, anybody's, because people don't have the time. Now, in the last 25, 30 years, I'd say my works, once I did a piece at, in, a, in a church in um, London, and it lasted five hours, but they decided a whole Sunday afternoon, and it was a big deal. I mean, they had to really prepare people that it was going to be five hours. A good many people came, but not hundreds. 
it's really interesting when you do a festival now, even someone with my reputation for what you're saying, that once upon a time I did long mm -hmm. pieces, they say, well, how long is it going to be? So I say, well, how long can it be? <laughs> and then they say, well, what about a hour-ish? It became from five hour-ishes to one hour-ish because there are lots of other things in a festival, of course. And if mm -hmm. they were to develop a work for five hours, then they would have to exclude all the other people in the festival. That wasn't such a problem 50 years ago, and now it is. So... I don't do as many long pieces in our society now, not to mean, I mean, I, I have to, I play for somebody. I, I perform for somebody. That's why my, my installations are the solution. They last, the last, the last um, installation audio visual that I did in, uh, well, two of them, one in, House Modrat, which is a place, you know where that is? That's just outside of Cologne. And that was um, an installation audio visual that I did that lasted for one year. So when you came anytime, this, it wasn't live performance, but I had this a very complicated, I did it in loops in such a way that you almost never heard the same thing forever if you came in for a whole year. So it was always changing. Um, and recently here in, in Brussels at a place called Canal, which will be the next Pompidou uh, Brussels in a couple of years, I did uh, an installation that lasted for seven months. So there I've been able to bring long, and then we're talking really long, because then in seven months, you can come there and you can sit and experience even for two, 12 minutes or, or six hours. And that's where I've been able to bring this idea of longness to our new way of life, putting it into a museum or art center context. So what do you, what do you think that we gain from listening to a piece that is very long as opposed to something that is four or five minutes? Have you ever listened? Have you ever listened to like um, um, Eric Satie's Vexations, which goes on for like a whole day? Um, no. What's the longest thing that you think you listen to um, at all at once? Eight hours. Eight hours. Mm -hmm. and, and what was it? It was Max Richter's album Sleep. Ah, and. You were awake? I was awake, yes. <laughs> and where did you listen to it? I had it on while I was at work for a whole day. In your house? Uh, at my office with headphones on. Ah, okay. At your office. Mm -hmm. There you go. So that also means that now you want it in a convenient place. You sure. don't want to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And there are ways that you can put my works though difficultly now, there are just several where you could listen to them all day in your home or in your office. But again, to say we've arrived at a time when that's very, very difficult to really interface into our 
daily lives. So I think that when you listen to something for a, a very long time, it allows you to get sort of more lost in the sound. Yes, lost. Yeah. Lost is a very good word. Yeah. That I like. <laughs> That's another word that I like. You used visceral and you used, yeah, lost. Mm. That I like, the idea to be lost into something. Is that how you feel when you're playing also? Or are you lost in the sound? Yes, uh, yes, I can be lost, but it's even more important that I'm sharing being lost with the people that I'm playing with too, whatever. But lost is a very, and if they said then, not minimal or maximum, but lost sounds, or like that's another term that I could, but I, no one's ever used that term. Mm -hmm. when, when, when we hear his work, we get lost. Mm -hmm. Wow, that would, that, that I would accept in a second. Mm. <laughs> so there are certain techniques that you use, one of which I know is using cardboard to hold down keys on the piano that, so that you can play many notes at once. On an organ. Because in a piano, it immediately, you press down and it's done. Right. You have to do it over. So strumming, mm -hmm. which is where I play over and over again with my fingers. That's on the piano. That's what I use on piano. Okay. But with cardboard, which then I had to change. This is also another elaborate uh, Baroque story. Um, uh, you have to keep the notes down on an organ. In, and if you can keep the, the keys down, it can play literally forever. Mm. And for years and years, that's what I did. But organists who I pissed off by my whole way of being, the way I dress, the way the music itself. Uh, they were, many of them who come, uh, uh, organists work in churches and they tend to be very um, churchy and conservative. They, many felt that my putting cardboard between notes, though it never uh, hurt any instrument, they created sometimes rumors that I can ruin an instrument, which I never did. Mm -hmm. But once in Lausanne, Switzerland, about 15 years ago, I was invited to play one of their most important organs. Mm -hmm the Association of Organists of Lausanne made a petition and they said that they didn't want me to be able to play this particular organ because I ruin organs and uh, they wanted the concert to be canceled. Mm -hmm. In Switzerland, churches are not in the hands of the religion, it's in the hands of the town. And so the mayor of Lausanne, when he heard the story, didn't know anything about my work. He didn't know anything about who I was, but he took offense that these organists were deciding that a certain a person from a certain place who was known for doing a certain thing was going to be banned because they decided. So he said, no, you can't 
you can't uh, stop this performance from going on. And so these organists who never even came to, they invented a system with little wooden batonets that makes the key descend, but it doesn't in any way push two keys aside like a piece of, of cardboard. Right. So and so and they left me a whole series of these little doorstops mm-hmm. as an enemy. Um, they they did it to be bad, but in fact it was a fabulous idea. <laughs> and from then on, I started to have those doorstops made specially, and that's what I use since then. So it was a strange story that mm. that my enemies created my solution. When you were talking about them being worried that you were going to ruin the organ, I thought you were talking about, um, I know that you, maybe that this is not true, I read it online, but I read that you used play so intensely that sometimes strings would break or your hands would bleed. That did happen. Mm. That's pianos. Right. When a string breaks, it's very easy to replace it with another string. It's not like some people who you like John Cage used things to play inside the piano and often put um, screws and other things between the strings. I never did that. It was only the intensity of my playing. And when it snapped, the company in those days that I dealt with called Bersendorfer, which is um, Austrian piano now, they would uh, always send me extra strings and a, a piano tuner in 15 minutes changed the string and it hurt nothing. Mm. So that was the first um, uh, rumor that it r- hurt the instrument, didn't hurt anything. And the second one is that I bled, which is true sometimes. I did play so hard that I bled on the instrument, but a little bit of um, uh, soap and water was able to take uh, the the blood off of the keyboard. Mm. And again, nothing was. So these are true stories, but again, used to try to sabotage. Each each discreditation has a new strategy for for that. So what other kind of playing techniques can you share that maybe help you achieve the sounds that you want to achieve, like with the with the little doorstops and things like that? Um, is there other unique techniques that you're using? No, not so many different techniques needed to be, but they were alternative. My necessity for new things, I always kept for me the uh, uh, prepared piano. That, that was the... That was the term that John, John Cage used 
when he started to transform pianos using other elements in the strings to make them sound percussive and other way. They call it a prepared piano. I never used a prepared piano just because I wanted it to transform out of energy, out of um, several, many pianos that I used to play, if they're not really well built, they lose their tuning during the performance because if you play them hard enough, the the strings start to sag, mm. which I found fabulous. So <laughs> you'd start with a perfectly tuned piano. I would play it a la Charlemagne, like a gladiator, a little bit like, um, and then by the end of the piece, the, all the strings were not totally out of tune, but a total other sound came and it came from the force of which I played. But again, the force didn't ruin anything in the instrument. Does it make it easier to play with more energy and intensity and in this big way when the instrument is also very big? Like I know that the, I don't know if I'm going to say this right, the carillon, is that how you say it? Carillon. Yeah, so I know that that's quite a large instrument. Well, the only problem is, I mean, is are not the instruments. The problem is that I'm 74 years old and I have a, a trick knee and certain things that you know, physically I'm not in, I'm not a, an Olympic, uh, I'm not an Olympic athlete. I never was uh, anymore, uh, but I can still play like an Olympic um, player. And that is an interesting Point. I mean, um, Franz Liszt was considered, he created works that were some of the most difficult ever written uh, for piano. And he had enormous hands. Uh, Rachmaninoff also. Rachmaninoff wrote very sweet musics, but his hands were enormous, much bigger than mine. Um, and so your your chops, your your body, in this case, your hands are important, like what size they are for what effect they will have on the on the instrument. And a, a carillon, as you were talking about, you play with your fists. You play with your fists because they're um, oak levers. So also, I started at 14 years old playing a carillon in that system which is actually an old Flemish system now that I live in Belgium. It, that's where the system was invented in the, mm. around the 17th century to play bells and not ringing like they do in England. They actually have a lever board instrument that you play with your hands and your fists. I, I, and I, over the years, I've played enormous amounts of that because I was a very early innovator of music for carry on. And um, I came as this sort of this weird Jewish kid from Brooklyn 
and this instrument seemed, oh, this seems like fun. And I had already started to experiment with little electronic instruments and stuff. I said, oh, well, this is using your visceral term. Oh, this is a very visceral instrument. And so I began with my fists and my ears and my energy to create a music that nobody else had ever done for that particular instrument. But not because it wasn't possible, but because the political and religious um, restrictions. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be lucky because it was next to Columbia uh, Broadcasting Company and the president of one part of that company, the bells were on his office and he adored, he had never heard anybody try to do like, I don't know if you know the Hunchback of Notre Dame. I became, uh, there were two famous um, uh, street musicians in those days. There was Moondog. I don't know if you've ever heard of Moondog. He played on Sixth Avenue. He and I were friends. He would come every day to stand downstairs from my church where from five to 5.30 in the afternoon, I would play these strange Cosimodo kind of um, in unknown, no one ever played incomprehensible bell, babang babings. And um, that became then I became the Casimodo of New York as he became Moondog. Moondog eventually became a very important composer. He became a very important, actually, in his case, a very important minimal composer. <laughs> that was him. And he had even done early works with Phil Glass uh, on the street, who was, while he was on the street. So, so there you go. Mm. So when you were talking about um, playing the carillon, at one point I read it in, in an interview of yours that you said you're not just playing, you're playing the entire building. Um, so I'd like to know a bit more about that, um, playing the entire building when you're playing the carillon. Well, if you, if you, I see, I don't like theaters. Mm -hmm. Theaters, theater acoustics, I mean, uh, um, to play a whole building, the sound has to be able to resonate in the entire building. Churches, think of the Taj Mahal, for example. Paul Horn was a, a very well-known jazz flutist in the late 60s. And he did a recording uh, at the Taj Mahal called Inside. And what he does is with a flute, he plays a, uh, a series of phrases. And the Taj Mahal is so resonant that it repeats and, and resonates in the entire building. <laughs> so that's what I always have loved to do projects in buildings if you're in a resonant building and you make a sound, it fills every part of the building. Mm -hmm. A theater, no. A theater does everything it can to, to make the sound less resonant and echoey 
so that um, it will be understood and listened to very rationally. But Gabrielli, I don't know if you know Gabrielli or Monteverdi, these were early um, Italian composers from the 16th century. They played in these uh, enormous spaces in, in, in Italy, in Venice, which were very resonant. And so they played with echo. That's what playing a whole building can be if there's enough resonance and echo when you're sitting, even where I'm sitting now uh, by the laptop, mm -hmm. the entire building can shake or resonate by what I do if I sing mm. or I play. And that's the sort of spaces that I've always preferred. And that's what we could say is playing a building. So what about playing outdoors? I think for the first time I saw you play was at Terraforma Festival in Milan and you played the piano, I think in like this big field. Um, so I'm wondering what, what was that experience like for you? Well, then, then obviously it's something else, it's playing in nature. Mm. And so it's not about, it's more about the entire natural context uh, I think, I'm trying to remember, probably that performance of, so I, I remember w w the one you're talking about, it was probably amplified. I'm trying to remember, because when I play outside, often it must be amplified, unless everyone can be huddled around my instrument. And so, I'm playing in the jungle or in a forest or in a desert or in a... So in that particular performance that you were talking about, I remember it, it was near to a chateau. Mm -hmm. It wasn't in the chateau, it was outside the chateau. And it turned out to be a very beautiful performance. I, mm -hmm. I remember the feeling. I don't remember, I even remember sort of the day it was because friends had come and uh, now I'm, but it was probably um, amplified. And we tried to create another experience, an experience of being, of having music, sounds, elements outdoors, in mm -hmm. a beautiful environment, which is something else. So that's, but I'm recently, I just played on the, uh, just, I came back from New York four days ago because in August I played on the biggest electric ferry in the world in Norway on the Oslo Fjord. 
okay. outside on this 123-meter-long ferry wow. on, a Fazio, on, a, on a Fazioli concert grand piano, and, but also um, amplified. Mm -hmm. And it resonated on the deck of the, and it worked. I've always been somebody who tries to adapt, but also, but my favorites, my favorites are sacred places. So if they're indigenous ones, they're often outdoor. And if they're from our European traditions, Western traditions, they're indoor. But mm -hmm. still, I always like to find a sacred solution, if I can say, a sacred solution. And so when you're talking about playing these really resonant spaces, I wonder, uh, we sort of talked about this briefly before, but um, does the size of the instrument also contribute to you know, how, how big the sound is. Um, I know that you also have played, for example, the largest concert piano in the world. Well, I, I own one. Really? The, the Bersendorfer Imperial is one of the, and I own one. Wow. So how is it different playing on that kind of really large instrument? Well, at, at first, I was lucky to early in my, if career is even a, a word to use in my case, my adventure, really, I haven't had a career, I had an adventure. I, I began to call many instruments casseroles. And so they are, it's rare that you find, well, what is the perfect instrument? So then I began to find many imperfect instruments. And then I found, well, imperfect instruments are really each instrument, each of us is an imperfect instrument. Hmm, that's interesting. And so over these last years, I enjoy playing or finding imperfect instruments, casseroles as I call them, and they are unique. So each instrument is then unique. Sometimes they're perfect for Chopin or Beethoven, but they're, but I try to find a way that they're perfect for Charlemagne, which is, can be something totally else. So have you always been the type of person who has these kind of big ideas and even if something doesn't seem like it's going to work you find a way well what do you think now after talking with me what you hear what you see is what you get what do you think i mean i i could toot my own horn but i prefer that you toot a horn for yourself but it sounds like what you just said sounds like me <laughs> but i prefer um, uh, confirmation by one or two others so that it's not just uh, uh, patting myself on the back. But I do like adventure more than uh, formality. And as all the subjects that we've now talked about, I have wanted to be, for me to be an artist was something to be contrary and and kind of a special road to find a special road in one's life. I've now been 
and a whatever, I say that instead of artist, a whatever. I started when I was about 12 years old. I'm 74, so that's 60. So this has been my adventure and I'm still adventuring. And so there, there you go. You've been listening to Charlemagne Palestine for Air Podcast, episode 40. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at at underscore air podcast to stay up to date with our latest. And join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash air podcast if you'd like to support what we're doing. Air is produced in partnership with Bear Radio, Berlin's English-speaking podcast network. Bear Radio is home to 24 shows with dozens of episodes for you to enjoy. So head to bearradio.org to listen. We'll be back on the last Wednesday of every month, so check back with us in December for the last episode of 2021. Thanks for listening. <laughs>